0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about Libya, Libya Is much again in the news because the migration crisis has become the central issue of politics in many different countries and is a key obsession of the new Italian uh, government led by Giuseppe Conte. But it's also back in the news because of political developments within the country. The background is that. Britain and France led an intervention against Muammar Gaddafi in 2011 and the country has been in turmoil ever since, divided mainly between a UN-backed government uh, in Tripoli in the west half of the country and a strongman military leader Khalifa Haftar in the east of the country. In uh, the... Years afterwards, there have been various attempts by the international community to create some sort of uh, peace process. And about a month ago, the French president hosted a big Libya summit in Paris and was very proud of the outcome. Four key Libyan leaders agreed to hold parliamentary elections uh, in December. And there was a hope that they would be able to unify military and security forces in the country, unify the central bank and uh, move the country uh, on the road to peace. But uh, more recently, things have seemed to fall apart again. Libya's uh, government has urged the United Nations to block sales from its main oil terminals. And um, Khalifa Haftar uh, and his Libyan National Army have captured uh, key oil terminals and announced that the revenues would be sent to a new oil company, an Eastern Oil Corporation, not the one of the UN-backed government. This has led France, Italy, the UK and the United States to express deep concern about events in, in Libya. Anyway, to help us make sense both of uh, wh- the Libyan conflict, the impact of the Paris summit, but also to talk about Europe's fight over migration policies in the country, I'm joined by an all-star cast. Back to the podcast again is Julian barnes dacey who's the head of our Middle East and North Africa program, and we also have Tarek Magrissi, who's our ECFR's lead analyst on Libya. So Tarek, you obviously follow Libya on a daily, if not hourly basis.
1: So why don't you start by telling us what's going on? The week before, really, uh, Haftar lost control of the the main oil terminals of the country, which pump out about 70% of Libya's oil. Um, He recently took them back and he came out with a statement in the aftermath saying that he is no longer willing to allow Libya's oil sales to fund forces which are antagonistic to him. And he really played into this popular narrative right now of how the government in Tripoli is corrupt and should be cut off from oil sales. And so he said, uh, I will command this eastern national oil company, which is one that was set up quite recently uh, to take control of the terminals and to manage their operations instead of the uh, traditional Libyan national oil company, which has been doing so to date. And uh, this came as something as a shock because most of Haftar's popularity uh, has been built off of this narrative that what he's doing is for the country as a whole. And this was vindicated by a previous decision when he first took the oil crescent uh, to allow the national oil company to take control, to allow uh, funds to be paid in normally uh, through normal channels. So it's caused something of a consternation both in Libya and with the international community. Um, before we dive more deeply into
0: this, into this latest crisis, for people who haven't been following the, the Libyan crisis uh, as closely as you have, do you want to lay out a bit what the different camps are and who Haftar is and how he fits in, into that bigger picture?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, Haftar is a, an old military man. He was around for Gaddafi's own revolution in 1969, fell out of uh, favour with him and fled to the United States. In 2014, he came back and launched what was called this Valentine's Day coup uh, against the authorities at the time, calling them corrupt and serving the interests of Islamism and terrorism. And he really started his own military campaign from there, uh, focused in the East, uh, where he played off this sentiment of a war against Islamism and a war against terrorism uh, to build a support base for himself. And through these engagements and relationships with Egypt, the United Arab Emirates and later France as well, he's built quite a formidable force for himself and he's taken over the east of the country, uh, which is where also the last elected uh, parliament sits right now. So they sit very much in a sphere of influence. Um, What everybody knows is the UN-backed or the internationally-backed government, which sits in the capital in Tripoli, was a product of these UN-sponsored political unification talks, which was supposed to um, bring some kind of peace to the country um, to unite certain factions. Um, But sadly, these were kind of rushed through at the end. And so this government, which was supported by the UN, is still not supported by the parliament itself. So there has been a deepening of the divide uh, between West and East since since the government came into Tripoli in 2016.
0: Why are the French um, supporting Haftar against the the UN-sponsored government? Isn't France part of the United
1: Nations? Yeah, I should clarify when I say France has been supporting Haftar that uh, it really did so um, throughout his wars against terrorism or what he declared as a war against terrorism. I mean, France has very keenly felt itself on the front lines of the war on terror. And Haftar was engaged in conflict against some uh, Al Qaeda-related groups, against some branches of ISIS, and so they felt the need to support him in this conflict. More recently, what they're trying to do is to to broker a peace, as everybody seems to be doing these days.
0: And so, can you say a bit more about um, about what happened at this Paris summit? And then it'd be great to to hear from you, Julian, about how the, this bigger picture, because we heard about some other. Middle East countries, and I'll see a lot of proxy conflicts going on in in Libya, as in as in all of the the theatres where war is happening in the Middle East. Uh, but what what actually happened in in Paris? Why was it significant?
1: Not very much, to be honest. I mean, the French took it upon themselves to reinvigorate what they saw as a stalling UN process, and to try and bring four of the most recognised actors in the Libyan conflict. Um, to a, to a summit where they would ideally sign some sort of agreement. Unfortunately, uh, intransigence was the winner on the day and nothing was actually signed. Um, so you've got these four people who came to Paris, agreed to try and um, hold elections on December and to work towards unifying institutions, but all these four people came back to Libya and really just played straight to their support bases. Um, so it was significant in the fact that they got these people together in the same room for probably the first time. Um, but the implementational phase still leaves a lot to be de- desired, and they've really delegated it all to the UN to do. And so we're still waiting to see some real gains
2: from the summit. And just to, to lay that out, Tarek, I mean the, the the French themselves though have said that there was an agreement reached. No, even if the Libyans didn't sign it, the idea that they're pushing is that you're going to get early elections run by the UN um, and that the attempt behind that is really to jumpstart the political process and that has been a source of some division amongst European states themselves, no?
1: Yeah, well they said that there was a verbal agreement um, because there is this kind of widespread international belief that something has to change in Libya and some kind of political agreement and national government has to form. Uh, but this French attempt to kind of own the Libya file and to take over from the UN as a headline act has caused some... Uh, disagreements amongst other European uh, member states who are also involved in Libya uh, who see this as unhelpful uh, because it's creating multiple initiatives in the country which allow Libyan actors to play off of international actors.
0: Julian do you want to put this Libyan conflict into a kind of uh big uh, Middle Eastern picture? I mean why uh, should we'd be so concerned about what happens in in Libya beyond the, the
2: migration deals, which we're going to be talking about later. I mean, first and foremost, from a European perspective, it is about uh, the stability of a country on our southern border and, and the, the way that that does play into the migration issue, uh, the way that that risks becoming a breeding ground for terrorism. If you do have state collapse in the south, then we've already seen... Elements of of ISIS taking root there at times, and hence the kind of French desire to get behind Hefta. There is, of course, as everywhere in the Middle East, um, a regional conflict going on uh, within the contours of of, of, a, of a domestic national conflict. I think more than other places, this is a national conflict, and I don't think you see the same. Degree of of, of um, or the same intensity of, of intervention as you do in, in in places like Syria, and it's a very different divide. I mean, elsewhere in the region and very much the headline act you see across the Middle East today is the sense of a Iran Saudi confrontation in in Libya. Um, it's a question of of Sunni Arab states supporting different sides. And I think particularly uh, behind Hefter, behind uh, this idea of a strong man fighting terrorism, you've seen uh, strong Egyptian and Emirati support that has extended uh, to to, to military backing, um, uh, actual aircraft being provided to to support um, his operations. On the other side, um, you've seen... uh, longer-standing cuttery and Turkish support for the government in Tripoli. And that seems to go up and down. And I think Tarek can, can give a better sense of how intense that current support is. And I think one of the issues that, that is at play at the moment is the idea that... Um, the intra-gulf dispute that you see happening between Qatar and the Saudi and the Emiratis elsewhere in the region risks uh, playing out with greater intensity within the Libya conflict. And actually, you could see a country like Qatar, which had been more removed of late, coming back in. Um, there have been some uh, indications of late that the Saudis have been trying to re-inject, re-inject themselves into, into the Libya sphere. So um, there is this risk of, of 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 external conflicts coming to play in, in Libya, further fueling the conflict, further destabilizing that, and of course making a solution so much harder to do. And that does, of course, then get you to Tarek's point that if you then also have European actors at odds with each other, not necessarily in sync but behind a, a UN-led process, um, that doesn't leave you in, in a pretty place in terms of the Europeans trying to move this forward constructively. Why are there so many tensions between
0: Europeans? Because I mean, I think certainly when I talk to Italians, they're not super impressed by um, President Macron's leadership on, on the issue. Um, but, uh, you know, Britain and France obviously have got some responsibility for what's happened in Libya as they were the ones who spearheaded the, uh, the intervention, which uh, precipitated uh, Gaddafi's ouster.
1: Well, the, um, the Italians have always traditionally viewed uh, Libya as in its sphere of influence. They commonly refer to it as its fourth shore. Um, and they see this uh, initiative by Macron, which was really spearheaded by the Elysee, to be France attempting to gain a dominant role in what is their sphere of influence, and more importantly, to be disrupting a UN process and disrupting a a status quo that Italy has helped to manage um, over the last couple of years, which has protected some of its interests in the country. Um, From the other side, the United Kingdom equally seems to view this as an unhelpful addition uh, to foreign intervention or foreign attempts in Libya to broker a peace deal, and uh, they see that a more integration approach or an integrated approach between international actors is ultimately the only way to succeed in coercing Libyan actors into a deal.
2: I mean one of one of the issues there does seem to be um, not just about who's supporting who but about the kind of this idea of pushing elections forward. I mean the French are trying to use early elections as a means of of, of, of jump starting a process that seems to be going nowhere um, the french the, the the Brits, the Italians, and others um, seem to have a lot of concern that actually this idea that elections solve problems is not a good idea that we've seen time and time again elsewhere in in, in the world and specifically in the region that, you know, this idea that you, you accelerate elections, that that, that will somehow uh, create a, a constructive political polit- space um, is actually a very risky bet. And, and, and that in the worst case scenario, it, it, it could provoke new conflict by creating this zero sum competition for power um in an environment where where frankly the, the the country and the actors aren't yet ready for elections. You all talked a bit about interests. From what you said so far, it sounds
0: like France's main interests are to do with terrorism and the war against terror. Italy, migration and oil, presumably its oil companies have been quite
1: uh, big. Um what the what are the other interests in, in Libya? Nobody has similar interests in Libya in the sense that they all want to have an effective partner in the war against migration and the war against uh, terrorism and to not allow the instability of Libya to become a breeding ground for terrorism um, and to ultimately disrupt or destabilize its neighboring states. But there are just different ways that people or that different states see as the best way to achieve these goals and to protect these interests. Um, and you're right, with Italy, uh, the presence of any which has uh, managed to continue its operations largely uninterrupted uh, since the revolution uh, is also a factor.
0: We go a bit deeper into this migration crisis. I mean, I think um, we are. In a situation where uh, migration across the Mediterranean is becoming a political issue uh, again in a way that it hadn't been for a, for a long time. But what is striking to anyone looking at the figures is how uh, the volume of, uh, of traffic has has, has uh, gone down significantly. And one of the reasons why people um, think that that's happened is because the, the last Italian government under the leadership of, the uh, former interior minister, Mr. Miniti, um, did a, a bunch of deals with, with different <coughs> militias in Libya. Do you, what, can you tell us a bit more about that, Tarek?
1: Um, they still officially deny that they made direct deals with people smuggling militias, by the way. I think it's worth to add. But um, essentially, they seems to have engaged with the primary militias who are doing that last step of the migration process, so trafficking people onto boats and then pushing them into international waters um, to be picked up, to police the flow of migrants instead of uh, enable the flow of migrants. And this has had, you know, some some success, as we can see with the numbers, but there have also been other dynamics which have played into
0: it. Tell us what the numbers are, just... Um-
1: yeah, I mean, it's gone down to 15,000 this year, which is numbers lower than what we've seen for about a decade. So
0: what was it at the height of the crisis?
1: And it was over uh, 100,000 or 200,000 um, when this crisis really came to the fore a couple of years ago.
0: They've done deals with, uh, allegedly, with, uh, with the people smuggling militias. Um, obviously, there's a new government in place now. And... Um, uh, the Conte government made up of this coalition between the, the Five Star Movement and the Lega Party, which has made a really big deal out of illegal migration, led by Matteo Salvini, who's the new Italian interior minister. What is changing with the, with the change of Italian government?
1: Well, we've seen two ways in that. First, they seem to reject the fact that any migrants uh, who were picked up in international waters can now land in Libya. Uh, They've prevented this vessel called the Lifeline from docking on Italian ports. Um, And they're extending this into Libya where they're pushing for a policy that, you know, enlarged migrant holding centers or hotspots, um, as they were previously called, should be set up in Libya. So to effectively push Europe's borders into North Africa and then to engage in some kind of processing over there to allow for legal migration uh, into Europe. And this was something that Salvini recently spoke about on a trip to Libya on Monday. Not a great response, by the way.
0: What is the situation of people who are being held in Libya now? Because there are lots of human rights uh, concerns about the conditions in which people are being held. Certainly in the German media, uh, people were even calling them concentration camps at one point. I mean, uh, what's happening uh, to the living conditions of people who who are being prevented from travelling
1: to Europe? It's absolutely horrendous. Um, Hundreds or if not thousands of people uh, are locked into small spaces. Uh, Their human rights are not respected in the slightest and this is basic rights such as access to food and water. Uh, They are regularly tortured in order to extort their families back home into sending more money to pay for these trips. Uh, Sometimes they are even pushed into forced labour. They are traded between different uh, migrant smugglers. Um, It's a really disgusting and quite well documented scenario now, which makes this fact that um, you are pushing migrants back into Libya to run dangerously close to this uh, principle of non-refoulement, which the European Court of Justice ruled on in 2012, which basically states that you cannot return any migrants uh, to somewhere where they might... uh, where they might be subject to harm or their human rights will be breached.
2: And I think, I mean, I think it's, it's worth noting that even in, in the Italian visit to Libya um, in, in recent days, the, the trip by Salvini suggesting that these new camps would be set up, the Libyans were once again very adamant that these would be run by Libya, that they wouldn't allow foreigners to, 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 to have oversight of them, and that, that you know, access continues to be very limited. Uh, for for those international organizations trying to trying to create better conditions so when the Italians talk about setting up new new camps and in in southern Libya um, it's very much in a continuation of this policy that doesn't see any oversight um, and allows these terrible conditions to endure.
0: How do you link the first and the second half of this conversation because you're saying that Libya wants to run these camps but our starting point was the fact that there is no Libya. You have this very fragmented country where there's a, a kind of ongoing war and warlords, etc.
1: Yeah, I mean the the migration issue has been one that's managed by non-state actors who sometimes have a nominal affiliation with the Ministry of Interior or the Ministry of Defence in Tripoli, and they would like to continue their role in this because they're being paid quite handsomely um, to manage migrants or even to just engage in the smuggling business. But Libyans themselves, there's quite a popular pushback um, towards what they see as Europeans bringing a European problem into Libya. And they don't like the fact that, you know, hundreds of thousands of sub-Saharan migrants are being forced to reside in Libya. Much like in Europe, they see it as having the potential to change the demography of their country. And recently, uh, so Julian mentioned this uh, um, idea of camps in southern Libya. Uh, there was supposed to be an Italian delegation that was flying to this small town of Ghat in the southwest of Libya. And when news of this spread, there was you know, a popular protest in front of the airport, which caused it to shut down so that Italian officials could not come to the city and uh, begin these plans to set up a camp over there, which I think demonstrates the level of uh, local discontent uh, to being the front for migration.
2: I mean, it does, you know, it's a typical European response of short-termism that gets in the way of anything meaningful. I mean, here you have, um, I think, anyone who looks at Libya, um, like Tarek, with greater detail, there's a sense of... if you really want to sort out the migration issue, if you don't want it to be this broken transit country where migrants are, are able to, to come through to Europe, you need you need to fix the structural problems. You need to make it a country that works again. You need to focus efforts on, on creating a political and security environment that that is sustainable and in a meaningful sense. But you actually have almost a contrary effort here, even as you have um, the, this kind of proclaimed European support for the UN process and so on and so forth. You have European countries paying off um, essentially what a non-state actor is vaguely com- connected to the center uh, to manage these migrant camps and effectively contributing uh, to, to the ongoing fragmentation of the country. So, so this, this attempt to keep migrants out is effectively perpetuating the conditions whereby a broken state allows migrants to, to, to come through with ease and, 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 and continue this, this ongoing crisis that feeds migration. So, maybe we should end
0: with, with that. It would be great to hear from the two of you um, about what Europeans should do differently and how likely that is to, to, to happen if we want to get out of this situation where, by pursuing um, the short term uh, fear of migration and terrorism, um, we seem to be uh, ensuring that these are going to be long term problems.
1: Well, essentially, the first and most important thing is that they need to find some common ground and the ability to unify uh, their policy in the country, to speak with one voice, to provide one sole initiative, um, which would uh, lessen the Libyan ability to, uh, to play them off of one another. And then also to, f- to really facilitate the U.N., In their attempts at consensus building to have the political discussions, the economic discussions and resource management discussions which are needed for Libyans to really move beyond this chaotic transition period that they've been stuck in since 2011 uh, to agree on a constitution and to form a constitutional state which will give Libyan authorities some kind of real structure and long term presence in the country rather than just periodic elections for uh, political bodies which have a mandate for a year or so
2: i'd just add i mean the, the need to focus on the right goals. I mean what you see happening in Libya is the same as in Syria and elsewhere in the region where you where you do have this this short termism driving European policy responses. Um, that the, the, uh, impedes the, the, the necessity of dealing with the structural factors out of which everything else flows. So, I mean, Tarek has laid out the kind of the, some of the core cool ne- elements needed to, to, to move the country in a positive direction, and I think Europeans do need to really focus their efforts on seeing it as, um, or, or, or in terms of trying to address the core conflict uh, that feeds instability and, and migration and terrorism and so forth, rather than the symptoms. Um, which effectively keeps on being a dead end if you can't work out um, some of these structural issues. Okay, well,
0: that was uh, interesting, somewhat depressing, but um, that's not unique for this, pov- for this podcast. <laughs> it's maybe more product of the historical juncture that we find ourselves in. We've got one more thing to do on this podcast, which is our
2: bookshelf segment. Um, Julian, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I've got to be honest. Um, since our, our our most recent podcast on Yemen, I'm still on the same book, um, which which is so. I'm going to give a, a, a double plug to to, to Rania Abu uh, No Turning Back: uh, Look at the Syrian Civil War. I hope by the by the time we record a new podcast, um, my reading will have accelerated to take me into new um new directions. Okay. What about you, Tarek? Well
1: given how depressing Libya can be sometimes, I like to try and balance it out with some uh, fiction. And right now it's Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who's more famous for The Little Prince, but he wrote this book called Wind, Sand and Stars, where he talks about some of his flying experiences t- delivering posts across North Africa, and this nice tale of when he crashed in Libya and some uh, Libyan communities found him, rescued him, and helped him to get back to France. It's uh, well written and quite a good tale.
0: Great. And I'm uh, going to talk about a book which I haven't started reading. Well, I've just started reading it, but it's called uh, How Democracy Ends um, by David Runciman. Um, and he's a very, very thoughtful professor at Cambridge University. Um, and I, from what I can see so far, I think this is one of the most interesting of the crop of books about uh, the, the kind of end of democracy. He's saying that we're, we're uh, prisoners of uh of, of, of past ways of thinking about how democracy has died in the past that we think about uh, chaos descending, the military uh, arriving to restore order until people can be trusted to look at their own affairs again. But in fact, uh, what we're seeing is a, a completely different sort of threat to to democracy, where a lot of the, the changes in our society, which are now too affluent, too elderly, too networked. Um, means that they're unlikely to fall apart as they did in the past. Um, And the the bigger danger is about institutions uh, decaying rather than um, uh, the kind of return of authoritarianism. Anyway, I'll report back when I've had a chance to make more progress in my reading.
2: Sounds like cheerful summer stuff.
0: Absolutely. It's great for for the beach. Thank you very much to the two of you for a fascinating discussion. We'll put links up to all of the things that we have mentioned on our podcast, as well as some of Tarek's writings on on Libya. And uh, if you've enjoyed it, please do let your friends and colleagues and acquaintances know about it by posting about it on your Facebook page or ours and tweeting about it. And um, if you could head straight to the ratings and reviews page on iTunes or whatever platform that you're using to listen to this podcast on, we really appreciate it if you uh, could give us a, a rating uh, and a review because it will drive traffic towards the, the podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, please feel free to write to me at mark.leonard@ecfr.eu. But for now, from Julian Barnes-Dacey, Tarek Magrisi and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbryosh, our producer is Wiebke Evering, and our editor is Katarina botel Azzinaro.